everyone. Good morning. It's good to see everybody in God's house. It's good to see some people that haven't been here since COVID. And also, there's some new people with us this morning. So lots of good people in the house. Let's give them a hand. We're so glad they're, they're here. And uh, Larry Medina is going to come up and read the scripture for us this morning. I saw you walking the other way. I'm like, chicken, come on back here, man. <laughs> Grab this mic for me. Um, and let me tell you, as you read this this morning, okay, prepare yourself. Put your seatbelt on. This chapter may shock you, okay? In fact, this is a chapter that most atheists and skeptics point to and say, see, your Bible condones all kinds of bad things. And if they would just simply read it and study it and walk through it like we're going to do this morning, like, not only is this not a confusing chapter, this is an amazing chapter. It's, it's beautiful. So think about that as, you, as Larry reads for us this morning and follow along on the screen with him or on your device or your Bible. Go ahead, Larry. It says, if in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess someone is found slain, lying in open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities and the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man goes shall take a heifer that has never been worked or that has not pulled in a yoke and the elders of the city shall bring the heifer down to the valley with running water which is neither plowed nor sowed, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priest, the son of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of the city near to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifers whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of the innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of the innocent blood from the mist, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. When you go out to war against the enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hands, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes and what she has, when she was captured, and shall remain in your house, and lament, and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. If a man who has two wives, and the one loved and the other one unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him a child, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions and inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son 
of the loved of the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved. I didn't get the last part. You did write my oh, fault. Oh, my sorry. bad. <laughs> go ahead. Who is the firstborn? Okay. There we go. But shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of that that he has, for he has first fruits of his strength, and the right of the firstborn he is he. If the man has a stubborn or rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father, nor the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them. Then the father and the mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gates of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this, this our son is stubborn and rebellious and he will not obey the voice. He is a gluttonous and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so that you shall purge evil from amongst your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if that man has committed a crime punishable by death, and has been put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day, for a hanged man is a curse by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. All right. Hey, and Larry, before you have a seat, why don't you just share what God's been doing in your life, okay? <laughs> Bless us with that this morning. Um, when, uh, when the pastor asked me to share and give a testimony, I, told, I thought, you know, I could get out of this. So I told Gary, you know, I can't go through everything the Lord's done for me without crying. And he was like, well, great. That's exactly <laughs> what we want to hear. Um, so as I was looking through and examining my life, um, and then I saw the, what was the hope? What was that called? Project Hope. Project Hope. Yeah. Um, I noticed something in those men. And um, what I noticed was the peace and joy of the gospel. And the peace and joy, I see it in people here, you know, when we have life group, I can see it all over their face. And it's the peace and joy that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all that believe shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that peace and joy is really what's made all the difference in my life. And man, I know there are people here in this congregation watching that are suffering right now, and they seem like all hope is lost, but how can you appreciate the daylight without the darkness? Sure. Right? How can you understand forgiveness without the transgression? So that's why, you know, like they said, the passage that I stand on is we rejoice in our suffering. And I just ask y'all to think about this week, you know, about that this week. So thank Amen. You. Well, thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. <clears throat> All right. How many of you would, would be honest as you think of, as you're reading through that chapter? Some of those verses were like, ooh, that's awkward. Anybody with me like that? That these are some really unusual verses that we'd be like, how would you apply that today? Okay, so hang with me. And uh, are you ready for a pop quiz? Remember when you would go to school and the teacher would say, okay, everybody clear off your desk, take out a piece of paper, we're going to have a pop quiz, okay? Well, we're going to do that this morning. So these are all true or false. So you have a 50-50 chance on getting them right. 
if you did your math properly. Okay, here we go. These are things that you've heard all your life, okay? And some are true, some are false. How, how many of you heard you use only 10% of your brain? Okay, true or false? It's false. Oh, good question. Is the statement true? It's false. It's false. Yes, it's true that you heard it. Good job. This school teacher over here. By the way, Rob just retired from being a school teacher for how many years? 22 years. Give him a hand. And now Chenda has a long honey to-do list for him. Okay. All right. Here we go. Hair and nails continue to grow after people die. That is false. The reason they thought that is because the skin around the nails dehydrates and the skin draws back, making the nails look longer, but they're not. So I don't know what y'all are doing digging up dead people anyway, but <laughs> you should drink eight eight-ounce glasses of water a day. False. It all depends on your weight. In fact, some people who have practiced this have actually washed out their stomach and washed out all the good flora in their stomach. And then they have to go eat probiotics because they flushed it all out. So it's not, it's not necessarily true for everybody. Okay, so dogs are colorblind and only see shades of gray. Okay, okay. Now, um, I'll give you a hint. I haven't had a true one yet, so. It's false, <laughs> okay. So you can't even trust me, I tell you. Um, yeah, in fact, the, the research on canines and felines about 28 years ago was totally flawed. They did a poor sample section, but they've been repeating the lie ever since. And just a few years ago, they discovered that dogs and cats can see in color. Dogs don't see red as well as we do, but they do see all the spectrum. All right, here we go. Analytical people are left brain and creative people are right brain. That's also false, okay. Um, but again, it's one of the things that gets repeated so often, but they found out, again, not true at all. The tongue has different taste reasons. Yeah, that's probably true, right? You're wrong again. That's false, okay. Um, we grew up here in this one. A mother bird will reject a chick if she's touched by a human. Go ahead and hang it out there. Okay, good. You look stupid again. It's false. It's false, okay. Um, how about this one? The Bible promotes slavery, genocide, and the mistreatment of women. You heard that in the news. That is absolutely false, as we'll see today. And people will point to this chapter right here to try to prove it, okay? Here's the last one. The Bible is God's word and has been proven true hundreds of times by amazing prophecies, archaeology, and, and science. That is absolutely true. And I, I hear people say all the time, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. And I open up my Bible and say, show me one. And they can't. Their college professor told them that and threw out a few weird examples, but they can't do it. But they will make lifelong decisions based on things that are not true. And we just went through a whole long list of things that we were told were true our whole life. And here we're in the 21st century, and we still have fake news everywhere and fake facts. And so people misrepresenting the Bible. So yes, this is a difficult passage, and skeptics love to use it to question the Bible. Um, here's, there's basically uh, five things that we saw, and to summarize, someone comes across a dead body, don't know who killed it, okay? The elders determine to close his city, elders kill a new heifer uh, to, and let its blood flow 
in, in respect towards the dead person. The priest here, everybody say their vows of innocence, and there's a guilt of innocent blood that's atoned for. This is all around the first part of this, what's happened here. Now, there is a beautiful chiastic structure in this chapter, which is amazing. You got, it begins with dealing with the death, and it ends with dealing with the death. The first death is a cold case study, as we've talked about. The second one is a cursed death. Then it moves in and talks about protecting a captive bride. And as it works its way out, it does another family issue in green, punishing a rebellious son. But what's at the very middle of the point of this chaotic structure? It's respecting the firstborn. That's important. Tuck that away, and we'll come back to that later. But that, that structure kind of tells us where this chapter is going. And this is not five randomly weird things. Dead body, firstborn, kill your son. It's not just throwing them out there. And people read the Bible that way and don't pay attention to the literary structure and really be... Have you ever had a kid who doesn't understand something? Well, that's stupid. Just because they don't understand it. People do that with the Bible all the time. They come across things they don't understand and they say, well, that's dumb. That's weird. That doesn't make any sense. So let's talk about the dead body found with no suspect. The point of this was that the whole community would see a loss of sacred life as tragic and provide an incentive also for the murderer to be found. That was the principle behind this. And notice, it says anybody who died. It doesn't say if you find a rich man that's dead, oh, this is really important. It didn't matter. It was respecting all life, which again, in this day and age, at this time in this culture, Life was not respected unless you were important, unless you were somebody. You came across a poor dead man, oh well, big deal. We see that all the time. But the Bible saying it doesn't matter who they are, male, female, bond or free, uh, whatever color, whether they're rich or poor, the life mattered and you needed to do something about it. And then with the elders determining which measuring, which was the closest city, there were several reasons behind this. One was to possibly find the most likely place of the murderer. Most likely the murder happened close to the, the closest city. And also, because all lives are sacred, a thorough investigation was necessary to reinforce that we are our brother's keeper. They wanted society to realize, hey, just because someone's dead on the road, just like, no, no big deal. We as a whole nation and all of our cities need to take personal responsibility to find out what happened to this guy. And if we can't, we need to take necessary steps after that because it does matter. All life is sacred. And then the idea of the elders killing a new heifer. Now, a heifer's a female, and again, it's a young female, and so it's not been worked. It, it, it's basically saying it's basically pure, and it's a, it's a very valuable piece of asset to a farmer. A heifer could produce a whole lot more cows. It's just getting started. It wasn't like take one of your old ones and kill it. It's, take this one that's very valuable and it's equating it to the life of the human, saying a human life is very valuable no matter, how, no matter what you think about the person. Because people are all made in God's image. Whenever a life is taken, there must be a life taken to pay for it. So in this case, it's an innocent heifer to... And again, if they found a murderer, obviously they would take his life because the Bible teaches capital punishment in this situation. And I believe in the New Testament well, but that's a whole other subject. But that was the purpose of that. So the priest hears vows of innocence. This innocence, all the people, all the elders and the judges of the city would come and they would say two things. One, we don't know what, what happened to this guy. And two, we don't have any evidence that we think could lead to what happened to this guy. We didn't see anything. We don't know of anything. We didn't do it. And we don't know who did it. Um, this was a measure of respect and accountability that could possibly also exact a confession or a lead to what happened. So all these elders and ju judges stand around and the Levitical priest says, okay, everybody, your turn. You go first. 
I vow, I promise that I did not do this and I do not know who did it. And then they go around the room. One guy's like, okay, I can't keep it in anymore. The guy down the street from me, he said that this happened. They got in a fight and he killed him. And he made me promise to keep it a secret, but I can't do this anymore. So it was possibly to exact a confession in this situation. Um, so with the guilt of innocent blood being atoned for, this was a type of Christ, a foreshadow of Jesus in the New Testament, where just like this heifer was taken down into a valley, Jesus went into a dark valley and dying for someone spiritually dead and alone with no hope of atoning for their condition while he himself was innocent. So it's a foreshadow of Jesus. And we'll talk about that more at the end. So let's talk about the next one here, protecting a captive bride. This is one where people go, see, it's basically saying you conquered this country and just go grab a woman and make her your wife, you know, whether she wants to or not. And that's not what's happening here at all. Think about what was happening in the societies around them. Women were abused. They were forced into prostitution. Children of all ages were sexually abused. It was rampant. That's why God was having them systematically go through and destroy these cities. So when one nation would conquer another, when the, when the war was over and they killed all the men and all the soldiers, they'd have a party for a few days. They'd get drunk and they'd rape and any woman who was nearby, whatever they want to do, grant gang rape, whatever they want to do. Sorry to be graphic, but that's, you got to give it the context here. And so there was all kinds of horrible things happen. And the Bible's saying, whoa, 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 you can't do that. You can't treat women like this. See, even in some cultures today, women are just as no more valuable than your horse or your donkey. You have four wives. You have several wives, whatever. It's just part of your plantation, whatever it may be. And the Bible's saying, no, a woman is equal to a man. And it, the, the, the nation of Israel was the first nation on planet Earth to exalt women to equal status with men. That had not happened in, in any of the previous empires going on to this point. So he, God is stepping in saying, hey, go, go just take any woman you want. He's saying, no, if you're going to make a woman your wife, you can, I'm going to protect her. I'm not going to let you treat her like all these other barbarian civilizations have done. It says, if you see among the captives, again, captives were treated poorly here, okay? Captives meaning they're, they're prisoners of war. You've just finished a war with these people, okay? And so you see a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to your real wife. So you say, hey, you have a desire. You're a normal, you're a man, you have a desire, but you can't just act on your desires and just do whatever you feel like doing. There's going to be rules with your desire, this was not taking her as a prisoner or a slave. This is voluntary. The Bible forbids kidnapping in Leviticus. You can't just grab somebody and take them. This is where the woman wants to be your, your husband. And because the Bible even says, like, like, remember Ruth? She was from a pagan society. She came in, and what was her vow to be part of, the, of Israel? Your God shall be my God, and your people shall be my people. And so anybody coming into the nation of Israel had to take that vow. And so this woman was willing to take that vow. And we see this in our own history in World War II. How many soldiers came home with Japanese wives? They didn't drag them. They didn't handcuff them. They met in Japan. And then the war was settling down as part of the occupation. And they met and they married. We saw the same thing even more recent history with all kinds of American men taking Vietnamese wives. They weren't forced into it. They weren't abducted. They, they met after the post-war thing, and this is what's happening here. So don't take this as, oh, they went in, they attacked, they rip, raped and pillaged and did whatever they want and grabbed the women and said, you're going to be my wife. No, it's very similar to our own society, and we would not condemn any of these scenarios either. It says, and, and you bring her home to your house. In other words, she becomes part of your family, assuming that, and again, the Bible doesn't promote polygamy, as we'll talk about here in a little bit. And so this is his first wife. You're going to take her in your house. You're going to take care of her. And then it says two bizarre things. 
She will, says she shaves her head. You don't shave her head. She shaves her own head and pairs her nails. There's, there's three things that are symbolic here. We don't know exactly what's going on. It's different um, archaeologists disagree on what exactly might be going on here. But number one, sometimes this was, and this is probably the least likely thing, but it could be included. It was a matter of hygiene. Remember, a lot of these other civilizations, because of their bad behavior, there was all kinds of sexual diseases, there was lice, there was all kinds of things going on. So shaving the head and trimming your nails was like a hygiene thing. So you don't bring the diseases from your culture into this guy's household. That, that's possibly it. But some people also think that in some cultures, this was a type of mourning. Hey, I just lost my family. Maybe her mom and dad either died in the war or now she's leaving them. But either way, she's mourning. And by shaving her head and paring her nails, trimming her nails, is a way of showing I'm in mourning. And, and in fact, the next verse kind of backs that up. And third thing was, uh, well, actually, that was all. Okay, and then she, she'll, she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured. Now, remember, imagine you're at war and all kinds of things are going on. So you're not, you know, taking a bath and getting dressed every day. So she may be, she may even have blood on her clothes, all kinds of things. And also her clothing may represent her, what she believed in the past. Because how many of these countries were doing what to their children? They were sacrificing their children as burnt offerings. So she's saying, hey, I'm leaving everything behind. This is a new start as my hair grows in, my nails grow in, and I have new clothes on, I'm showing my life is starting over. I'm no longer believing in Baal or Dagon or any of these pagan gods that asked me to sacrifice my children. I now believe in the true God of Israel, and I want to follow him. So it's all about a new start. And she shall remain in your house. Okay, now watch this. And, and she shall lament her mother and her father a full month. So 30 days approximately. He doesn't marry her. He's feeding her, he's clothing her, he's providing everything for her, and he is not touching her. She's crying because she misses her mom and dad because they're either dead or she's left them behind. Um, and he's allowing her that and giving her that respect. And then after that, after all these things were done, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And again, all of it is voluntary. Again, the Bible forbid, forbids kidnapping, so this wasn't dragging this woman, kicking and screaming. It is show, compare this to what the pagan nations were doing. You desire a woman, you rape her. It's just what they do in war. That was normal. That still goes on today in our culture. Here, the Bible says, no, no, you desire a woman, hold on. You give her 30 days to get over her past culture, her family, and if she wants to voluntarily come and become a Jew and recognize the God of Israel, you respect her, you cherish her, you love her, and then you go in, and after that time, you become her husband. And so this would make men stop and think, well, do I really want to marry this woman? You know? And then so, again, it, it really was reaching out to where everybody in the world was doing evil to women, and God's saying, stop it. You can't treat women like this way anymore. So the very verse that people will point to saying, see, this is war brides and just mistreating women, it's exactly the opposite. God is elevating women to where they belong. So it's an upgrade from the status quo. It's respect for women, and it's showing mercy to the enemy. And notice there was some of the seven Canaanite tribes, there were supposed to be no survivors. So this isn't talking about them. This was talking about the peripheral cities that might have interfered. And remember, I talked about last week, we talked about how some of them, you'd say, hey, we just want to pass through. And they'd be like, no way. And they'd come out and attack you, so Israel. And so they defeat them. 
And, but they were commanded, don't just only defeat, only kill the soldiers, but leave the women and children alone. So this was under that situation. And this is showing a lot of mercy to the enemy and treating them with respect. In fact, um, let me just actually go back to that. One of the things we don't, we, you know that phrase, those who do not learn from history are what? Destined to repeat it. Um, how many, besides American cars, what are known as the best cars in the world? German and Japanese, okay? Why is that? Because in World War II, who did we defeat? Germany and Japan. And you know what America did? We were the first country in the history of the world to rebuild our enemies. The Marshall Plan, right? The Marshall Plan spent hundreds of millions of dollars, which today would be billions of dollars, to rebuild Germany. After all Hitler had done, we go in there and we rebuild German factories that we bombed. We rebuilt the German economy. We showed them how to, to make a, an assembly line and do all kinds of things. We went to Japan and did the same thing. And now our two best friends in the world are Germany and Japan because God, God used America to show mercy to their enemies where every other civilization in the world is like, yeah, we defeated you. You're done. We hope you never come back. And America showed mercy and we learned it from where? From God's word. So we go to the next one here, and this is the middle one in the chiasm, respecting the firstborn, respecting the firstborn. If a man has two wives, wait, wait a minute, what? He has two wives. And people put this, say, here, the Bible endorses polygamy. It's not saying, go get two wives. It's saying, if you've messed up and you have two wives, okay? In the, Jesus, in Matthew 19, he says, the way it was from the beginning is God created them male and female only. He not only tells us the number, and that's two. It's not meant to be a marriage of two or three or five or whatever. And he tells us who the two are, male and female. He didn't say just two people. He said God created marriage. His, his, his design is male and female, one of each for a lifetime. And so our culture is telling us every other crazy way in the world, but we have to go back to God's word. But people messed up. And so does the Bible describe situations where people have multiple wives? Absolutely. It tells us all the mistakes that they made. And if you do a careful study of the Bible, everywhere polygamy is mentioned, it's a mess. It is a mess. It is, and it, it's not, it is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. It's not telling you go get two wives or multiple wives. In fact, it tells you all, in fact, every character in the Bible, it shows their flaws so that we will see the flawless one, Jesus Christ. I mean, David, the hero of Israel, Tells you all about his murder of, of Uriah, taking his wife, the adultery, the whole thing, and all of his sins. Every hero in the Bible is full of sin and failure. The only true hero in the Bible is Jesus Christ. So it's not saying you should have two wives. It's saying if you've messed up and you now have two wives. And again, including that, how many pagans realized that Jehovah was the true God, so they came in and they became, they became followers of Jehovah. Well, they can't divorced their wives, but they came from a culture that had two wives. So there's all kinds of room for many scenarios here. So this is not an endorsement of polygamy. Like divorce, God is making provisions because of the hardness of their heart. The Bible, God, the Bible says God hates divorce, but because people say, well, we're going to do it anyway, God, Jesus says, well, if you're going to do it anyway, then you do it only for the case of adultery. So he's not saying go ahead and get a divorce. 
He's saying, since you're going to do it anyway, and he's saying here, he's not saying go marry multiple wives. He's saying, but since some of you have done it anyway, here's what, what my guidelines are. And so since they will do it anyway, basically what's happening here is damage control. The culture is transitioning from being very barbaric to being the civilization that God wanted them to have. It says, if a man has two wives and one is loved and the other is unloved. We've seen that story in the Bible where people playing favorites, okay? And both the loved and unloved have borne him children. If the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns the possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. So you got two wives. Let's say you married one woman and she gave you a son. But then you got tired of her, so you stupidly went out and got another wife because you like her better, and she gives you a son. Which one's the firstborn? The one, chrono, chronologically. You can't say, yeah, but I like her better and I like her son better. You can't play favorites that way. And here's, we say, well, Gary, what's the big deal with the firstborn? Well, life expectancy during this time was much younger. If, you, if a man lived into his 50s, that was old, okay? So very likely that if he had a bunch of kids, you know, ages 24, 18, 16, and 12, and he died. Basically, the 24-year-old became the head of the household. So what he did is he gave him a double portion of all the inheritance so that he could take care of the younger ones. And, but they still had an inheritance too. But he got a double portion because he was now the head of the household. He had to keep the family business running because there were still kids in line to take care of. It was a great way of carrying it on. Sometimes it was abused and sometimes it was wrong. But, and again, nowhere in the Bible does it say this is the way it's done. He's saying, since this is the way you're doing it, you need to do it fairly. He said, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, and he is the firstfruits of the strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Then the next thing we see, here we go, come on, is punishing a rebellious son. And this is the one that seems really difficult. But again, remember the context. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel, not to America, not to the world today in the 21st century. He's talking to Israel at a time when they're in war and they're going into the promised land, okay? So do not take these verses and say, well, we don't do this today. Yeah, there's a lot of things we don't do today. I don't, if it rains as much as it's been raining, has anybody gone out and built an ark? You know, God told Noah to do that. Well, that was, that, that was then. There's definitely time and place and context for things that happen in the Bible. So if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, and the word son here means child. It could be a rebellious daughter as well. It just means any of his offspring who will not obey the voice of his father. Watch this. Or the voice of his mother. What has it just done? It's saying you've got to obey your mom just like you obey your dad. And you realize this was unique. In any other culture, the Babylonians, the Philistines, the, the Perizzites, the Herdvites, the, the the termites, all those ones. Everybody was basically the dad, whatever dad says go. And even grown sons would look at their mom like, I listen to you. And that was no big deal because women were second class citizens. And the Bible say, no, no, you have to listen to your dad and your mom. Mom and dads are equal in this situation. And though they discipline them, and so that's prerequisite. You can't bring your spoiled brat to the elders and say, he won't behave. Well, have you spanked him? Well, no. <laughs> don't talk to us. That's your problem. If you've disciplined him and he still won't obey and he still won't listen, then here's what you do. Then his father and his mother, shall, the father and his mother, again, she's involved in this, shall take hold of him. They actually have to physically arrest him because he's, if he's a rebellious punk, he's probably like, I'm going. 
So they physically had to take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate where the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our stubborn and rebellious. This son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton. In other words, he's just a lazy bum, just sits around and eat. He won't work. He's just playing video games all day. And he's a drunk as well. Okay, so this is, this is, it has to say both of them, okay? He will not work. He won't do what we say. He rebels against us. And he's just getting, staying home and getting drunk. He's a horrible kid. And so some of you squirming, I can see already. Um, and then all the men of the city. Can you imagine this? Can you get a picture of this? Well, I mean, let's say the city has 2,000 people, you know, and, and let's say 500 of them are grown men. 500 men come out here. This is, this is quite a scene. This is not like, you know, a little private matter taken care of on the sign on the side. It said, she'll stone him to death with stones. Now notice, the women were treated equal in the whole decision making, but when it comes to putting them to death, they get to sit back and watch. <laughs> it's like, you, we'll do the hard work here, but yet you helped us with the decision. I think that's actually a little chivalry there. Um, so you shall purge this evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now again, is this verse saying, you need to do this today in the 21st century? Man, there'd be a whole lot of stoning going on today, <laughs> okay? Um, and there's several interesting things about this, but First of all, put it in context. They are at war, okay? And if you have a rebellious son who is not doing what he's drunken, he won't listen, and you're trying to fight a war here, he's a threat to your security. Rewind to England, World War II. At 7 p.m., all lights had to be shut off. Why? Because the Germans were bombing London, and if they saw lights on, they know where to bomb. But they had to fly at night, not knowing where they could bomb. And did you know that if you had your lights on after 7 p.m. or after sunset in London, you could go to jail for a couple of years? Oh, man, Gary, that's hard. Now, if we were to read that statement and read a law book in, in London, if you, if you are found with your lights on after sundown, you go to jail for two years. People are like, oh, that's so stupid. Just because of a light switch, put it in its context the whole city could get blown up because of one light being on. Let's put it in context. The, the nation of Israel could be destroyed because of one rebellious son who could go out and tell the enemy, hey, we found out that the troops are going to be over here on this time. You can attack us now. And you pay me some money and I'll go with you. It, it was a security issue. So, and here's what also is super interesting about this. Well, let me read this verse. Proverbs 19.25 says, strike, the, the principle we can apply today is strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. School teachers in the room, you know this, especially when you have a new class and it's a new year, and you got one kid who she or he wants to be the class clown and wants to compete with you at who's going to run the class. Man, you put them in trouble real fast on day one. Everybody's like, ooh, she's serious. You know? I remember one time I had a, I was a long-term sub at a school, and I had one kid who just would not listen. I'm like, JP, sit down, and you need to sit down, and you listen. And he's like, he would not listen. Oh, I have to get this. I need to get this. I'm like, you need to sit down. It's time to start class. I said, if you don't sit down right now, I'm flipping the switch. It was a switch for, like, security. And he's like, oh, no, I'm going to do that. I went, flip. He goes, no, I can't believe you just did that. I said, I can't believe I had to tell you five times. And everybody's like, whoo, this sub means business. Because most of the time when I hear sub, I think they're going to go crazy. But you know what? That class did exactly everything I said after that. And the, there's a biblical principle that if someone's rebellious, if you will deal with them, then everybody else realizes they can't act the fool as well. So the, here's the interesting historical thing about this statute. Nowhere in the Bible did you ever see a kid get stoned for being rebellious. 
I think it was a deterrent. <laughs> because they saw people get stoned for murder, for rape, for killing, you know, whatever, doing all kinds of horrible things. And as soon as they started talking up back, they said, mom says, you want to get stoned? And I'm not talking about marijuana. You want to get stoned? And they're like, oh, no, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And you know, to this day, Jewish children in general, in general, I'm sure somebody knows a Jewish punk, but in general, Jewish kids are very respectful of their parents because it's part of their culture. And what's also interesting is not only nowhere in the Bible do you see this, they can't even find it anywhere in history where the Jews ever stoned a child. To me, it worked as a deterrent. Um, but again, a security item as well. So these are a lot of crazy things in this passage, right? I mean, we agree. But now that we've talked about them, it's like, okay, now they make sense. But I want to speak especially to those of you who are like in high school and younger. Someday you're going to go off to college. And if you go to a state school, you're going to be taught things that say the Bible's not true. And they're going to point to things like I just talked about. Hopefully you've kept some of this in your head. Recently I was at the airport and it was very crowded, unlike this picture here. And, uh, I, there was nowhere for me to sit, so I'm kind of standing by the wall near a plug with my phone plugged in like you do at the airport. And this one young girl over here had two bags, and there was an older gentleman sitting next to her. And she got up and said, hey, would you watch my bags? I need to go to the bathroom. Well, you all know that's not, it's actually a federal thing. They're like, you cannot leave your bags with someone you don't know well. Well, she did that, okay? And I thought, started thinking back on this, that story when I was studying for this. What if when she got back, the guy is gone and her bag is gone? What would she be thinking? Go ahead, tell me. He stole it. Yeah, he stole my bag. Oh my gosh, and I got valuables in there and my jewelry in there, blah, blah. She would automatically think, because I don't know this guy, he stole it. But let's go rewind. Let's say she said to her brother, hey, would you watch my bags? I'm going to the bathroom. And she comes back and her brother and her bags are gone. What would she be thinking then? He probably had to go to the bathroom or something. Where he, or maybe they changed gates and he, I need to check my phone and see if he called me. Notice with someone she doesn't know, she suspects the worst. With someone she does know, she, ex she expects or suspects the best. You see, when you know someone and more so you love someone, you give them the benefit of the doubt. When people go to the Bible and read difficult passages... They go, oh, I don't think the Bible makes sense. Maybe, maybe my parents were wrong. Maybe this college professor is right. Maybe the Bible's full of lies, and, and therefore I can go ahead and live like I want to live conveniently and do what I want to do, and the Bible's not true. You're not giving God the benefit of the doubt because you don't know him. You're not giving God the benefit of the doubt because you don't love him. If anybody you know did something that, let's say your husband or wife or your brother or sister, someone you love did something that really doesn't, it is explicable, you'd be like, well, I don't know what happened here, but I'm going to wait till I talk to them to find out and I will give them what? The benefit of the doubt. When you come across, when you come across difficult passages in the Bible, give God the benefit of the doubt, not yourself. Okay? Because there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible that is like, ooh, that's weird. And then there's stuff that's plain black and white. Like Larry said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How more plain and simple can you get? But yet many won't believe that. Here it is, as simple as can be, and you won't believe it? Maybe that explains why you want to not give God the benefit out over here where it's hard because you won't even believe the very things that are simple. So you will never know exactly what is right on every issue. Do you know that? 
We can have our best opinion. We can understand the Bible as best as possible. There's some things that good Christians will disagree on, but we don't want to know everything. And you'll, you'll have to decide and learn to, who to trust with this sermon. Not, not just flippantly make a decision, but after you've studied it and, studied it and you still don't understand, you're going to have to find out, I'm going to have to trust somebody. So the question is, who will you give the benefit of the doubt to? Will you give the benefit of the doubt to your professor who's telling you the Bible's not true? Or give the benefit of the doubt to God when, he, when you don't always understand all that his word says? So the chiastic structure would start off with dealing with a cold case death, and it ends with dealing with a cursed death. Then you got all that that's in the middle there. Let's kind of walk back through these here. So what does all this mean? How does this, where do we see the gospel in this? Okay, when I first started Deuteronomy, I was like really like, man, this is going to be tough. This is going to be tough. And, and I was really dreading getting to chapter 21. And you know what? This has turned out to be the best chapter so far. Watch this. It says, if a man has a committed a crime punishable to death, uh, punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. And again, it, God's not saying you should hang him on a tree, but if you did that, why would, notice he's already put to death, and now they're hanging him on a tree. Let's see, they stoned him, which was the most common way, but then they picked up the body and they hung him on a tree. Why would they do that? To make an example. They're basically saying, hey, here's what happens when you murder your whole family. This is what's going to happen to you. And they would hang his body on a tree. It didn't say they hung him and that's how he died. He's already put to death, but they're putting him up for example. And again, nowhere in the Bible that says this is what you should do. They're saying, if you've done this, this then we've got to do some damage control here. It says, his body should not remain all night. In other words, hang him up for an example, but we're not going to leave him there. The Romans would crucify people and leave their crucified bodies there for weeks. Flies and everything. God said, no, 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 we're not doing that. You want to make an example, fine. But when sundown comes, his body better be down. Because this is a holy land. We're not going to defile it with all kinds of stinking flesh and flies and all that stuff. We've got to get him down by sundown. And it says, for a hangman is cursed by God. So a body that's hanging on a tree, it's saying this guy's cursed because he's been punished for, for a crime and we're not going to leave his body there as that curse. But look at this, John 19, 31. This very principle was being applied when Jesus was crucified. Since it was the day of preparation, it was a holy day and they had work to do and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. So it was about to turn to Sabbath. They wanted to get their bodies down by sundown. They were practicing this very thing for the Sabbath was a high day. So they wanted to get done by sundown, but especially for their biggest holiday, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. So sometimes when a guy was crucified, the way that they most commonly would die would suffocation. And so the way you could speed that up, because what they'd had to do was they had to push up on the nail. So if you broke their legs, they couldn't breathe anymore and they suffocated and died. So that was a quick way to do it. But what was fascinating about that, when they got to Jesus, they were about to break his legs with the equivalent of a big baseball bat. And they looked at him and say, he's already dead. And the centurion says, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I think so. He said, throws him a spear and says, here, stick him in the side. He stuck him under the fifth rib, which is the sack around the heart, because if he was alive, his body, his pumping heart would have pumped the blood out. But the Bible says water came forth first, then blood oozed out. And you know what? Psalm 22 prophesied that very thing almost 600 years beforehand, that Jesus would be dead. And it also fulfilled that Jesus was just like a Passover lamb, that you would kill it, but you wouldn't break one single bone. Isn't the Bible amazing? Yeah, believe that, skeptics. Okay, the Jews, I need to be more compassionate. 
Please believe that. Okay. The Jews asked Pilate to break their legs that they might be taken away. So you got the dealing. Let's go through each of these here. We just covered that last one. So dealing with a cold case death. We are spiritually dead like that body out there in the wilderness with no redeemer. And Jesus is the innocent heifer that dies to absorb our guilt. What about protecting a captive bride? This one is amazing. We're the enemies of Jesus, just like they were at war. We've sinned against God. We've shaken our fist in his face, said, you're not going to rule over me. And he conquers us. And then rather than killing us, he is killed. He takes us into his home. He clothes us in his righteousness. And he loves his bride, who was once his enemy. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. You see this captive bride here? That he may sanctify her, you know, more than 30 days, cleanse her, give her new clothes by the washing and the water of the word so that he might present the ch to the church him him to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such th thing that she might be holy and without blemish. We are the bride of Christ. We are the captive bride of Christ who wasn't dragged into this relationship, but willingly say, yes, Jesus, I give my life to you. Respecting the firstborn. We are the children of the unloved. There is nothing lovely about us when Christ died for us. And Jesus loves us and puts us in the position of the firstborn child. And with that position comes this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, which means the firstborn, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus Christ is basically our big brother. He's the firstborn, but guess what? He shares the inheritance with all of us as if we all are the firstborn children of God. Punishing the rebellious son. How does that apply? We're the rebellious child who deserves death. But Jesus is taken. And where did they take the child? Outside the city gates and killed in our place. Watch how this is fulfilled in scripture. Hebrews 13 says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Jesus was like the rebellious child when it was us dying in our place, taken outside the city. Instead of being stoned, he was crucified. How do you deal with a cursed death? Well, Jesus died a cursed death. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written. Written where? In Deuteronomy, the most quoted book of the Bible. For it is written in Deuteronomy, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus, who did nothing wrong, took your curse and mine for us. So that in Christ Jesus, are you in Christ this morning? I hope your answer is, well, I hope so, or I'm trying. You're either in Christ or you're not. You're either in Christ because you put your faith in him to save you, or you're still trying to impress God with your good works. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through what? Faith. Not through baptism, not through keeping the Ten Commandments, not through giving money to the church. You receive Christ by faith. Let me ask you this morning, have you ever trusted Christ to save you by faith? I would like for everybody to join me in prayer right now and just bow your head and close your eyes. If you know for sure you're in Christ and you've, you've trusted Jesus to save you, I'm asking you to please pray for those who don't know that for sure. Please pray that God would open hearts. And if you're here this morning or if you're watching online and you've never put your faith in Christ, you can do that here today. You are the cursed one, and Jesus took your curse. You're the rebellious child, and he died in your place. You are the foreign 
enemy female, and he's taken you as his bride. He's offering all that to you. Have you ever accepted Christ? If, if not, you can trust him right now. Maybe you could pray a prayer like this, and the prayer doesn't save, but in your own words, I'm going to just pray a prayer. You can follow along. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. My sins are so many, I can't even count them. Thank you for taking my place and taking that curse on the cross when you had done absolutely nothing wrong. I believe you did that for me. I believe you were buried. I believe that you literally rose again back to life on the third day for us. And so I make you the Lord of my life right here, right now. I give it all to you because you gave all for me. I make you the Lord of my life and I thank you that you forgave all my sins in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that you made that decision today. If you did, this is my cell phone. Feel free to text or call me anytime. I would love to talk to you about your next steps as a new believer in Jesus Christ. Um, we're going to have a question and answer session here like we do every Sunday. So if any questions about anything you just heard, you can text this number right here, okay? So let me leave it out for a second. You can text that number right here, and uh, it'll be back up here in a second. Um, but any question about the message right here, Deuteronomy, any question about the Bible in general, maybe something you saw in the news this week and you want a, a biblical perspective on it. If you're our first-time guest, we want to give you a, a gift. You can fill out one of those Connect cards, and we have a gift for you at the table if, if you didn't already get one on the way in, okay? And then, um, Sophia, if you want to come join me for question and answer, you can. Um, if you've graduated uh, from either high school or college or something, any, post, any high school or post-high school, not talk about that you graduate from kindergarten or fifth grade or eighth grade or 10 years, your sophomore, half through your sophomore year. Anyway, we graduate everything now. Not sophomore, sorry, I can't talk. Um, but if you graduate or someone you know that regularly attends Revolution Church, graduate, we want to give you a gift next week. So please text me right here at this number and let us know that you graduated. We want to honor you next Sunday, okay? Um, and then... Um, did you know you can now give via Venmo? We don't, if you notice, we don't pass an offering plate here at Revolution Church. We do have a gift, uh, um, not a gift, don't take the money. Uh, we have an offering basket in the back, um, and you can put an in there, or you can give via Venmo, and there it is, at Revolution HTX, at Revolution HTX, and you can give directly, goes into the church's bank account. Um, not this Saturday, but next, we're going to have a men's prayer breakfast those have been great. We do them every other month on the second Saturday. So uh, it'll be at the Dement Home. You can text for details as far as address and all that stuff. And something we say around here all the time at Revolution Church is everybody serves. So instead of a few people doing the work of many, we let everybody chips in, does a little bit. And uh, if you are looking for a place to serve, here's a, just a few things that you can do. There's many, many more. In fact, one that I should have put on here is kind of coordinate social media, like handle our Instagram uh, and our Facebook accounts and kind of post things on that. But if you want to do any of these things on the list or anything that's not on the list and you haven't found your place to serve yet, text me and we'll get you set up for that. Also, man, recently the teens had a bowling activity and we had 23 teens go bowling and eat pizza. And man, it was a great time and a big shout out to those who put that together. Here's what we want to do. We want families to just take one activity a year. So if you're willing to have a, a hot dog roast at your house, and you want to do it in September, text me, and I'll help you get it all set up. But we're looking for 12 different families to do 12 different activities, really 11, because one month we're going to camp. Um, but anyway, if you want to just sign up for one, or maybe even two, just let me know that you're willing to do that. And speaking of camp, we're going to go to camp 
Uh, we're not doing kids camp this year, but we have to go to a different camp for teens. So we're going to go to Engage Camp up in Waxahachie, and it's phenomenal. Here's a little sample. All right, so this is some of the churches that we'll be going with. We know some of these people, actually, but we're going to go up there, and so the church will raise some money to help go to camp. So if you're not even sure you can afford it, just let us know if you're interested in camp. We'll talk more about that next week. Okay. All right, question and answer time. Here we go. Um, there we go. That one looks familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Oh, Mike. Okay. I'll just read it. Okay. Deuteronomy 21 states, Stone him to death with stones. What else would they have stoned them with? Isn't it true that all angels are in the male form? They are not women or cute little babies. Uh, oh, so that's two questions. Okay, good. I thought we were talking about stoning angels. Okay, <laughs> here you go. Um, so, stone him with stones. Also... That's a good question. Um, I'd have to look that up because my, here's my hunch that there's two generic Hebrew words for stone. One might be a boulder and the other one might be ones you could throw. And it's basically saying, don't drop boulders on them. You got to do it like this. That's my guess. So let's do some research and find out. Other than that, I have no idea. Okay, so Jesus was asked by the Pharisees they told him this ridiculous story. In fact, sorry, it was the Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They said a man has a wife he doesn't give her a child. He dies. She marries his brother, which was the custom in those days. And he does the same thing. She doesn't have a son. So she goes number three, number four, number five, number six. Number seven, you think, have enough common sense not to marry the black widow. But he marries her. And again, the same thing. And they say, okay, so in the resurrection, did you believe in Jesus, which we know is ridiculous because we don't believe in the resurrection. But you believe in that. Whose husband shall she be? And he goes, you guys don't even know your Bible. Seriously, go back. He says, you don't even know the scriptures. He said, the Bible says we shall be like the angels and will not be married. So the angels did represent themselves as men, but they're basically, the genders didn't matter. So uh, whether angels have male and female uh, representations, I don't know. But yes, in the Bible, Michael, Gabriel, Lucifer, and every other ones were, and even like some that prepared in battle as soldiers, were all male. I don't know if that was to be intimidating or if they all are male. Maybe God keeps all the females one with him. I don't, I have no idea. But the gender doesn't matter as much. But yes, they all pre did present themselves as that. I don't, know, I don't know the reason why. The Bible doesn't say. When you get to heaven, you can ask, okay? First Timothy 2, 9 through 15 is one of the passages that seem to degrade women or highlight their inequality with men. Can you comment on what this passage is referring to in context, specifically the part about being redeemed through childbirth? Okay. Um, I'm familiar with the passage, but I don't know it by heart. Someone read the, read the section again. What, 1 Timothy what? Um, let me see. 2, 9 through 15. Someone want to read that for me? 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 11. Through 15. 2, through 15. Okay, who has that? Because I don't have it memorized, obviously. Nine, nine through fifteen. I also want the women to dress modestly, modestly with decency and propriety, adorning 
adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who confess to the God is love. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then he. And Adam was not born to see, it was the woman who was to see, the king of sinner, 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, great, great. That's a long passage. I'll try to hit the highlights. I can't go through doing a whole sermon on that thing, but okay. Obviously, modesty, there's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't show women are inferior. Modesty applies to men, too, but women have more to be modest about because you're amazingly beautiful. So, um, and it, it, there's different types of salvation in the Bible. It doesn't say she'll be born again because she gives birth to children, okay? It's, it's a, a type of deliverance, and so it's a redemptive thing that God uses you. Notice it, it, it actually... Um, instigates the male. It says that the man is the one who sinned. The woman was just simply deceived. Okay? Who's responsible for the fall? Adam is. Romans says by one man sin entered into the world, Adam. It doesn't hold Eve responsible. In fact, it says, Adam, basically implies that Adam should have been there protecting her, and he wasn't. He's, he's standing there with her, watching his wife get seduced by the serpent, and he's not doing anything about it. So it knocks him down. Um, but yes, there are roles to play. Okay? And that women are to submit to their husbands. And we, we are a complementarian church, not an egalitarian church. You can do research on those two terms if you want. Um, we believe there's different roles. And the Bible does say submit to one another. For example, when I come home and Tammy's got kids going on and dinner going on and whatever else, I say to her, how can I help? I submit to her because she's the one that run, manages the household. She has a better idea what's going on. And I submit to her. But if there comes to be a big family decision and we discuss it, we can't come to an agreement on it, she will say, well, Gary, you're the head of the house. Whatever you think, I'll trust you. And I make the decision. And there's people you work with. You may have a boss that works over you that is no more intelligent than you are, but she's the boss and you're not. And if everybody just does their own thing, you know, and even the quarterback, he's not the biggest guy on the team. He's not the strongest guy on the team. He's not, and he may not even be the smartest guy on the team, but he's the one calling the plays. And if everybody does their own thing, the team's not gonna work. And of course, those are analogies, but let me give you the best one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, okay? Which one's less God? None of them. But the Jesus, who is equal with the Father, willingly submits to the Father and says, that's all I do. I came to earth to do the will of my Father. So wives, you get to be, play a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, and then we get to play a picture of Jesus Christ by loving our wives and cherishing them. In fact, husbands... We, there's no guarantee, but if we love and cherish and adore and honor our wives like we should, they're like, yes, sir, I love you. Let's go. I want to I live my life with together as a team. And yes, take the lead. Let's go. So, but again, there's no guarantee. I know men who try to do all that with their wives and their wives still won't. Okay. But it's not a secondary thing. Let me also address the silence. Back in the first century, women and men sat on different sides of the, of the, of the aisle. And so the men were all sitting over here, and the women were all sitting here. And so someone would be teaching, and the woman would look at her husband and say, what is he talking about? What does that mean? And they're like, hey, shh, let's wait till we get home and talk about it. And that was literally kind of what was going on. But I do also believe that women don't teach in authority over men. In other words, women can teach, women can speak, women can lead Bible studies, but women aren't the senior elder in the church, the one who carries the weight of the preaching of the Word of God. But they do a lot of other amazing things. We just do things differently. Okay, so it's not, 
It's not an inferiority, it's different roles. And when society tries to tell you that men and women are basically the same thing, we're not, okay? Um, you play jazz music for two-year-old kids, two-year-old girls' heart rate accelerates. Boys, nothing happens. They totally don't get it. No, no joke. You let, put toys in front of toddlers, boys will go through them, girls will go around them. No joke. You give, put a bunch of trucks in front of boys, they go, rum, 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 rum. girls go, what do you want to do today? I want to do this today. Blah, blah, blah. And it becomes mommy truck, daddy truck. We are so different from day one, even in, in uh, inner uterus, or in, uh, in, what's the word? In uterum. Yeah. Something like that. Anyway, I'm not, all right. That, that's enough on that question. I, I'm sure I could go on for a long time. Go ahead. In today's time, when a man has two wives, does that mean his wife and his ex-wife? No, no. Um, there's a biblically and legally no. Um, some people, old school way, would interpret this like when it talks about a pastor should be the husband of one wife. It means he can't even have an ex-wife. But you, would anybody in this room who has an ex, would you introduce? This is my wife. None of you would say that. You might say, this is my ex-wife. There are no, ex means they're no longer your wife. Now, it doesn't mean you should jump around over and over again, okay? But um, legally and biblically, if you're married to one person, the, the word literally means when it says a, the pastor should be the husband of one wife, it means he should be a one-woman man, okay? That he's loyal to one woman. And so a lot of us have divorce in our baggage. God forgives things for whatever the circumstances were, but you should be legally and spiritually and biblically dedicated to one person. Why would they hang people as an example? To basically say, don't mess around. <laughs> you know, especially if foreigners came in and they're like, hey, what did that guy do? Say, well, you know, he killed his wife and his kids. So don't, you don't mess around. Because what's sad is because men were so dominant in other cultures, you could actually get away with that. If nobody wanted to, persecute, to prosecute you, you could get off scot-free because especially if you owed that guy money, you're not going to tell on him. So, or if he was your boss or whatever. So all kinds of snuff things were happening uh, in that way too. You can snooze that. All right. Any others? Yes. Okay. Luke 11.4 says, and do not lead us into temptation. How can God lead us into temptation when we can't be tempted by God? Great. That's great. So um, that's one of those passages that, okay, how many of you in the room are bilingual? Okay. Have you ever tried to take something from Spanish to English? You didn't really have the right words for it. In fact, it might be four words in Spanish, but it takes seven words in English to get the meaning across. So the best way to say this is don't lead us down a path that might tempt us or lead us in a path that's temptation free would be the best way to say it. It's not implying that God would say, hey, follow me. I'm going to tempt you over here. God, James says God doesn't tempt anybody with evil. So it's basically saying, God, please, I'm so easily tempted. Please lead me down a path that just is free from temptation. That's the best way to put it in English. It's, it's the, the, the translators were trying to use the same numbers of words as best as possible and, be, and give the same meaning, but they probably could have used a few more. But again, there you get into, well, how many more words do you want to add? You guys are giving some tough questions here this morning. I'm going to have to sit down and take a break here. <laughs> um, what is giving God the benefit of the doubt when the Bible mentions in Matthew 5.32, a man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery? Right. Okay, so you need to have biblical grounds for divorce. And what the Pharisees were doing was literally, 
um, the rabbinical writings said that if your, if your wife burnt the food, you could divorce her. No joke. That was, that's, it, just go back and read um, the rabbinical writings. They had all kinds of crazy things. They were divorcing for any reason. And Jesus is saying, stop that. So, so he basically he's saying is, you married this woman. Your real reason is you're just tired of her because you got your eyes on somebody else. She burns the food. You drop her and marry her. You didn't do it right. You're basically committing adultery. That, that's what it's saying. Okay. That, all right, cool. Give Sophia a hand. Good job. Thank you very much. All right. And let's go to the next slide there. Um, can you switch that for me? And let's stand. And we're going to read a verse of scripture as a blessing over one another together here. Here we go. I got it. All right, let's read this with honor and respect for the word of the Lord. Number 6, 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. <laughs>